He's a really, really good sibling. He's loving. He's caring. He shows up. But he also knows when to like knock on the door and be like, excuse me, here I am. Hello. We need to talk about something. There's so many stories about him from ages birth to 15 and a half, no question. And I can tell you those things, but I think like, I don't know, like he's still here. Okay, here we go. We might have some emotional release today. These are some flowers for Linda. Hey there, Kate's here. So nice to have you with us on the Flowers for Linda audio zine where we talk about the relationship between creativity and grief. This is episode four, and we are just going deeper into the dialogue. As such, it's befitting that I get to introduce you to Caroline Rothstein today. My deep as hell, and I mean that in the most complimentary way possible, friend of well over a decade, who is a poet, performer, educator. Caroline, okay, is one of those does it all and does it well kind of creative beings. She's had journalistic pieces go viral. She's well known in the spoken word and slam poetry community. She has produced her own one woman shows and other people's films. She's an advocate for eating disorder awareness and mental health, and she is no stranger to identity shifting, world shifting loss. At the top of the episode there, you heard Caroline starting to talk about her brother, Josh. He was hit by a car and killed when they were both teenagers. I want to pause to acknowledge that I'd first written in the intro that Josh had died in a car accident, and Caroline lovingly brought to my attention that that is not the language or framework that the family has come to in their own healing journey. And I was so happy to change that. I'm telling you that because this episode has its seam showing. It shows our process as friends. And it started, I mean, the conversation started uh, over a decade ago, but... For this episode, the conversation started before we sat down together. I received this absolutely stirring email from Caroline in response to a newsletter I published with a loose essay blog piece called On Watering People, which is, of course, about grief in part. I read the essay at the end of the episode if you care to stick around for that, but let's start today with Caroline's open-hearted note to me. Wednesday, October 6th, 2021, 4.50 p.m. Kate's, I ended up exploding with sentences and words. So heads up, there's a lot of talk about grief below and me processing slash thinking out loud. No pressure or rush to read or respond. XOXO. I've had on-watering people in my iPhone browser for days. I keep starting and stopping, starting and stopping. Today, now, was the moment. I opened it on my computer. I needed it big, in my face. I began bubbling with tender tears just in opening it. I knew it was going to water my cheeks, reading your words. This post. Tonight begins the anniversary of my brother's death. He was hit at 4 p.m. Central Time, which happens in 17 minutes. He died at 11.17 a.m. October 7th, which will happen tomorrow. In my family, the Yartzite, the Hebrew slash Judaism, the word in Hebrew slash Judaism for, quote, annual death anniversary, happens over two days. Because it was really two days over which he died, getting hit his heart stopping. I have been waiting for the grief to bubble, like waiting for delivery on my stoop. I go down early because I know it's coming and my buzzer is permanently broken. So that means I already know that I will have to go downstairs to get my food. And so when it's nice out, when I have the time and the space, I go down early and sit on the stoop and wait. I feel that's what happens now. Year 19. I wait for the grief. I sit on the stoop of my soul and wait. And reading your words was like the bag of takeout arriving by bicycle and handing off to me a bag of nourishment and food. Is it illegal, like ethically in the scheme of the universe, 
for me to call grief illegal? Am I allowed to say perhaps that my grief over my brother's death nourishes me now 19 years later because it is part of how I remain in conversation with him and have an ongoing relationship with him now on the other side of the veil? And perhaps is my grief a thing that nourishes him, his spirit, his legacy? Perhaps my grief is water to a plant. Perhaps that is a thing that continues to need watering and tending to, grief. And so all of this feels like an important thing to arrive at, which is to say that your words brought me here to this arrival, this realization, this epiphany, this growth of grief. I love you. Saturday, October 9th. 2021, 9.34 p.m. Well, first of all, thank you for this gift of witnessing me and allowing me in turn to witness you. This is the precipice we stand on. Are we allowed to say what is true, even when it hurts or feels counterintuitive? Can we admit that we are not the only ones who have felt this way and it has been those brave enough to name it that give us permission to try it on ourselves? Is it okay to admit we want to be able to do that for other people too? Is it okay to just do that then? One day I would really love to hear more about your brother. Tell me what he loved, how you connected, what you talk about in your heart and brain. If you can imagine him, if he'd grown up with you. If you can accept that even in death he grew you. And he'd be pretty proud of how you turned out that it helps him that you still grieve, but only when it's appropriate. The rest of the time, I feel sure of it, he'd want you to live your life, and as much of it as possible, smiling. So tell me about your brother. He's been dead longer than he was alive, but I've become so accustomed to what he is like in death that I feel if I'm to be present with like the tell me about your brother, it's like he's an extremely powerful spirit. He likes to play and hang out. We're reaching year 20 now. And I feel like there is a memorializing that is powerful. And I think for a long time, holding on to those early memories of who he was in a body was really needed. And I, I still lean on it. And, you know, like I'm, I'm not married. I would like to be like, if I have any semblance of a wedding kind of ceremony, you know, like for years, it'd be like, I'd like fantasize in my head of all the like male friends who I'd call in before and be like, please bless me since my brother's dead, you know? And like now that seems unnecessary. I don't need to do that shit. I don't need a replacement. I just got a vibe. I just got a, you know what? It just happened. <laughs> I was like, what's up, Josh? <laughs> By the way, um, my husband got some wine last night and you know what brand it was? Josh. Of course. I just put the bottle into the kitchen from the office where I had been hanging out. You know? <laughs> so I'm laughing because I'm also getting a vibe and it's like, tell them about the misery too. You know, like I don't, <laughs> I don't want to paint this as a fairy tale in my worst moments of despair. All I want are my dead loved ones. And I tell myself that if only my brother could be here right now, even as recently as like in the last few weeks, in the worst moments of despair, it has been like, everything would be better if the dead were alive. Like it's the being truthful to all of it, the despair and the grief and the heartache and the like euphoric, oh my God, Josh, you're coming to me in this fish show song and like I feel you okay okay whoa you're here like the range and so how did I how did I get here like I can only speak for myself there's like a adage that like Jews do weddings and death well and then I think it's very funny because it's like well are you saying like <laughs> given the history of mass murder we do death well no it's like to me ritual is 
and especially religion or faith-based practices of any kind, are a wrestling of the nuance between mortality and immortality. And so if that's what ritual offers, for me, like I say, I was born Jewish and I choose to remain a Jew because it's a language that works really well for me in this body, in this lifetime. Honestly, Josh's death helped me deepen my connection to Judaism because of how helpful the rituals around death and bereavement were. Why they helped me get there is because they're well-paced to invite us to acknowledge that grief happens and will continue to happen. And it can happen, like there's like a system to it so that it allows space for like, we invite you to go on with your life, but and also we invite you to remember We invite you to go on with your life. And we also like, and that's kind of the ebb and flow of a lot of ritual in Judaism. But with death, it starts with, as my brother was dying, he got hit by a car um, and flown, thrown into the side of a, a store building and his head cracked open and he became unconscious and he was taken to the hospital. There was brain surgery and the next day, he, you know, he died when his heart stopped and, and he was removed from a breathing monitor and so, or a, a breathe machine. And so our rabbi from our synagogue and the chaplain rabbi of the hospital were in the room reciting a Jewish prayer that is said at the deathbed while my mother was lying in the hospital bed with him, my sister and my father and I, and I think my maternal grandmother. So we're in there. So when I think about the moment of my brother dying, I am hearing Hebrew incantations. That is what I'm hearing. <laughs> and I get chills saying it right there. So the, the, the beginning, I'm more chills. So like the beginning moments of the beginning moments of his death, right? Is this incantation and hearing these words being recited. And then the next piece is Tahara, which is the preparation for a body for death. And there are people in the community whose job it is to prepare a body for death. And then there is the funeral. In Judaism, we are asked to bury the dead within four days, but not on Shabbat. So he was he died on a Sunday. So I'm pretty sure, God, the journalist in me is like, you should have fact-checked this shit first, but I'm pretty sure his funeral was on a Thursday. Fuck! Oh my God! <laughs> so, so there's the funeral, there's the burial. And a, and a really poignant memory for me is that we're invited to shovel three shovels of dirt onto the casket as it goes into the ground. The rabbi invited us to do the first two, like, quote, normal, and the third upside down to honor how hard it is to bury someone you love. And it just like, it just keeps going with the like symbolism, right? And then we have what's called Shiva, where we, we, for seven days, hold space in the home of those grieving and people come and pay condolence calls and, and hold space and tell stories of the person who's died. For a long time after my brother died, I just wanted it to be Shiva all the time because people were there. It was my bedroom became a cocoon of the young people grieving from my best friends from childhood and cousins to my sister and her friends. We were just this like cocoon managing the tragic death of a 15 and a half year old. And so then after Shiva, there's a ritual called... <laughs> getting up from Shiva. I don't even know what it is in Hebrew. I've tried to, I'm pretty sure it's just getting up from Shiva. And my fam, my father and mother and sister and I, we get up from Shiva and we take a walk around the block to acknowledge the end of Shiva. And we get up and, and, and that we have to take these first steps together. And then the first month of grieving is called Shloshim. I think I'm getting this right. And the ritual is to every day recite Kaddish. Kaddish is the Jewish prayer for death, for mourning, the mourner's Kaddish. And it's in Aramaic. For that first month after Shiva, we recite Kaddish every day. And the more religious you get, the more, you know, the more rituals there are from like, you don't hear music, you don't, you know, you cover your mirrors. That's saying for a month, we need you every day to look this in the face. There's a full year of saying Kaddish. And then after the year is the unveiling of the tombstone and another ritual at the gravesite. And then after that first year, 
that's the send you on your way. And every year after that is what's called a yard site. And for Josh's yard site, we light a candle, a 24 hour memorial yard site candle that burns for 24 hours. We say Kaddish. And um, sometimes, most years, I'll go to a Shabbat service um, and, and stand up and say Kaddish. So this goes back to what Kaddish is, is that in Jewish prayer services um, on Shabbat, all the people who have died, whose yard site it is each year of that week are honored with Kaddish at Shabbat services. And every time there is a Jewish prayer service in the morning, in the middle of the day, and in the evening, Kaddish is recited. And historically, you need 10 people to make a minion to say Kaddish, 10 adults. And so sometimes like Jews will get pulled in the sidewalks in the streets, be like, excuse me, we didn't need, we need a minion to say Kaddish. Because to properly honor the dead, there needs to be a certain number of people to hold that space, to hold the communal space for the grieving. And so this is like in Judaism, we don't mourn alone. We show up. If someone dies, you show up. You need a minion for Kaddish. You show up. Now, I'm not getting into the intricacies of like historically in most circles, a Kaddish minion requires, you know, 10 cis men. But excuse me, it's 2022. And in our reclamation of Judaism, we just need people. I don't really care what, you know, like who cares what their gender identity is. But it, if it takes 10 people to make a minion, that is an ongoing reminder that it takes a community to hold us through grief. So I feel like I've really gone like on the, not the 101, on the 508 of like Jewish burial practices. But I'm going to, I'm going to, but, but, th- but here's why, Kate's. Every year I have to look his death in the face, those rituals that I am always saying Kaddish for others and saying Kaddish for the loved ones I have. And when, when someone dies, we say, may their memory be for a blessing. And so this notion of memory as a blessing is instilled from the moment someone dies. And their name at the end takes on a, I forget what it stands for in Hebrew, but there's this like Z L thing, which means someone has died. So it's like the name even takes on a holiness of like this, this name is now a spirit, but we remember it as a blessing. And that's why I think Jews do. (laughs) And that might be why you're a poet. Some might say, (laughs) I mean, I'm so glad you went into the 501 because I mean, I just had the experience again of, of over lunch, you know, different experience from the space I was in at that time, which was, I think, probably five months or less out from my mother passing. And I just was in awe of that. It was so beautiful. And I thought about, for those of us, you know, I have Jewish in my background, you know, one through the dad's sides doesn't count, you know, all these roles. So I'm particularly interested, you know, to hear you talk about you know, your your faith and, and the rituals of it. But also I think just hearing it is helpful because for those of us who have to invent our own rituals, yeah. there are clues in there, right? Totally. How you call people in, creating a space, lighting yes. a candle. It's the same idea of sitting down yeah. with and facing, you know, yes. facing grief, getting out of your own way in terms of the cycle of life totally, and allowing grief to be nourishing. I mean, I love that email exchange between us. And it was so powerful to hear it again, because the question of, can I see someone's death as a gift, especially talking about someone who died young, feels so selfish, but yeah. I, I think it's so much the opposite. So I, I, I'm, I'm kind of just spinning yeah. now, like in my emotion, yeah. hearing you walk through all that and thinking about one of the most important things to me when my mom died was to be very hands-on and creating the experience of the memorial. You know, I brought my sister and I brought my dad in as much as he could really deal with it. But we, we really were very intentional, right? About the whole space. That was our space to do it. We opened the song she loved. My cousin played piano. My other cousin sang. People read. It was funny. I drew the program. Like it was, it was something that I could throw myself into in honor of her. Yeah. Because there was nothing in that space, you know? So I think it's instructive and beautiful to hear how different people move through their faith traditions with death. And I, I like want to say like borrow copy. Do you know what I mean? Like I used Jewish rituals for death for other things in my life after a breakup and I was moving out of my exes and my shared apartment. Like I could not physically get my body 
out of the apartment, down the stairs to meet the movers as we drove off to like put my stuff in storage. What I did was I pulled up, I had a Blackberry at the time. I pulled up the mourner's cottage on my Blackberry and recited cottage in the living room and then grabbed my Swiffer that I told him I was going to leave and, and left. But get that like, Swiffer, I, girl. <laughs> I, got a, I had to get the Swiffer, but like I couldn't leave. And I said, oh, this is a death. I'm grieving. I need to ritualize myself out of here. We have little deaths all the time. There are so many things we grieve. So like, are there other rituals that help in other moments that we can translate to other life moments that feel similarly of a similar vibration? You know, a ritual is a container. So what containers do we need? Like all of my cups in my cabinet hold different kinds of water or liquid, right? Some can only hold the the hot ones. Some can hold hot or cold, but I got to know what container is going to do the right thing. Because if you put boiling hot water in a glass that is not made to hold boiling hot water, it's going to crack and break, but they're all holding liquid of some kind. So it's like, it's the more we get to familiarize ourselves with the different containers available and the different vibrational things it holds that we can like have this nuanced malleable osmosis game of like how do I ritualize the moments that help me transform that help me get through that help me pass through that help me live through and work through and Mm. (laughs) what a fantastic metaphor are you a poet let me ask again yeah but aren't you too no, I know, but I just, my gosh, so much beauty just pouring out. This is why I like to have meals with you. You know, I'm just like, come inspire me. Do you want to read a poem? Sure. What do you want me to read a poem about? Death? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Topic of the day. Oh my God. There are so many. I got an entire manuscript. You know what I love about this? As you're searching for what you feel called to read and share in this moment yeah. is, you know, when you're like, let me be real, you know, there are tough moments too. I think what was really hard for me to understand when my mom first died, it was really hard for me to imagine when it wouldn't be all consuming her. Uh, It was really important for me to read the experiences of other people as few and far between as they were in my, in my library. I mean, that's all over the place, you know, in, in our tales, but I mean, something that really was talking about grief experience directly and, and pointedly. And I think, you know, hearing from somebody who's 20 years out is it gives you a a sense and time perspective that often people like to give you who've never maybe um, faced grief fully themselves. So they're like, time, time, time. It's a cliche. But when you hear uh, somebody's experience, the full story of it, the full spectrum of it, you know, the laughing in the middle of talking about something painful, it's more embodied. You understand, oh, there's another side to this immediate pain and the cliche is true but it's lost its potency you know we have to reanimate it and so i think you know you you are such a gifted storyteller you know that um i don't know i just uh, thank you for that playing that role for me you're welcome i love you thank you and that just changed the poem but actually the request is can i do two poems of course because even better you said a thing and it's like okay we need to do both those poems now Perfect. Well, I love your poems. So what a treat for me and whoever will listen to this. Yes. Um, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. Thank you for this, like, you know, conversation, podcast, art making, audio zine. It's ritual too, as you said. Yeah. Okay. Wait, hold on. Can you, before you read, just saying it's a gift, you know, I never imagined in the early stages, speaking of that, that I could imagine that sitting around and having a conversation about death would be like fun. Right. But it is like, it's really, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's tremendous. So, totally, you know, totally. yeah. With that hit us with some poems. Um, so this poem I wrote, I think in the last year, um, this feels relevant given what we were talking about. It's called reeling. R E E L I N G. His closet was a candy store after he died. I went inside before the funeral, or maybe it was during Shiva, and grabbed the gray UCLA hoodie from his teen tour. 
slept with it every night for the rest of college, held it like a pacifier for my hands. I don't think a crystal would have saved me from this mayhem, but I'd like to think a piece of calcified earth in the crescent crevices of my palm might have made it easier to hang on to the trauma instead of being out for blood. Every day, I pray for raindrops on the surface of a still-tied freshwater lake, preferably in Maine. Every day, I wake up to the 35-millimeter movie reel looping in my brain. The cycle of abuse is on repeat, just like the way I check my stomach every single morning after I wake up and pee, even though I haven't stuck my finger down my throat since I was 21. Old habits just don't seem to fucking die. And I'd obviously rather that the cycles of abuse that continue to plague me from relief could have died instead of my brother, but here we are. My would-be 34-year-old brother is dead, and I am still waking up to the same trope of trauma every day. For some reason, all the grief is less responsible for making me want to leave my body than the abuse. The abuse is a soaked-in shoe, a soaked-in sock, the most annoying fucking aspect of a storm. But when the storm is on another body of water, passing the circuitous cycles of liquid from a calcified cloud into a pool that is vesseled by the earth, oh, how that raindrop is a crystal, rather than the annoying ass water making my shod feet otherwise cold. I'm just absorbing. Um, <laughs> I love your work so much. I can't wait for your books and all the things. <laughs> and you're fantastic at uh, toggling. I, I talk about this a lot. I think about this a lot. Toggling between the daily and the divine as mm. what, what, we're, what we are really forced to do in transmuting our experiences into art. I think that's what I love so much about your voice. And I aspire to myself is really something that is elevated, but also, you know, tethered. Like there's a, there's a kite on the yeah. end of the string. Your poem is prayer and also so um, of this world at the same time. It's just a really beautiful combination. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. Thank All right, you. let's hear number two. Okay. When you were talking about time healing, that's why I was like, oh, I have a poem called Time Heals. September to August. So we got it. The, it's actually time heals question mark. And then in parentheses, September to August. And before I read it, I'm going to say like, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about my brother, which is no question the loudest death in my life. And I've lost a lot of people I love. My best friend from boarding school died six months before my brother. A close friend from college died by suicide when I was in grad school. A couple friends from high school died in college. Um, there have been family members. There have been friends, loved ones. And my best friend from graduate school died in 2017. There has been a lot of loud death in my life. Josh and Sarah from grad school and Kat from boarding school are kind of like the trifecta that are like loudest at the top and do a lot of showing up. Many years ago, I did an April 3030 for those that don't know, which is when poets write a poem a day for National Poetry Month of April. And every day was an elegy. And most of them were people I actually knew. And so there's been a lot of death. And so I just like want to name that this before I go into this poem, which I wrote, I think I wrote this poem in 2000, maybe. 10, 11, 12, I don't know, there's about thereabouts, those years kind of blur together sometimes, but it was in the process of wrestling with does time heal. And I'm going to tell you how I wrote the poem before I do it, if that's okay, because I think it matters in the sharing of it. And in talking about time healing, I'm, I want to fact check, I'm fucking fact checking. Um, UIC fish 2011. Okay. It was 2011. Here's why I know this. Because I'm at a fish concert in Chicago. And to keep them anonymous, because I have not gotten a chance to get their consent on this. Uh, someone I know, a loved one, is 
potentially on drugs and they're hugging me. And it reminds me of Kat hugging me in Oxford, England in 2002. And I'm like, oh shit. Oh my God, this is intense. Like here I am being, you know, dead ass sober with a loved one, having some incredible experience on whatever, holding me like a koala bear. And I'm not here in 2011. I'm suddenly transported to 2002 with someone who's now dead. And this moment of like connectivity and like how it, you know, what is time and what is anything and what is body, what is spirit. And so I wrote the end of the poem as its own poem. And I just repeated this one line over and over and over. And that was how I first started performing the poem. And I performed it at an open mic at Louder Arts. May it rest in peace also (laughs) of uh, an old poetry venue and series in New York, Um, which was an open mic where I felt very comfortable trying new shit that was very experimental. And I was like, I was mostly a New Yorican Poets Cafe person. And this was not a thing to try experimenting at a New Yorican slam because I was trying to win. But I tried this wild thing and it was and it was using my performance art background and performance art inclination and this notion of repetition. And, and, and so the poem was the entirety of the end of the poem for a long time. And then I built it out backwards and realized it wasn't just the month of August that I was holding space for. It was the entire year and the cyclical nature of a year and every month having these memories that it holds. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm filled with emotions. Like I feel <laughs> it in my body. I just, I'm, whew, I just had a thought. You just described um, how kind of creative revelation happens in, in, in one way, right? Wow. And I think also that um, the feeling of getting a message from my mother, it's kind of the same feeling, having a creative revelation for a piece or my book or my project and going, I got it. I got, it's different. It's a different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be this is the same yeah. feeling that when I'm like, I mean, I guess it's intuition, but it's, I don't know. Is it more? I got, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I think op- I'm so open. I to think it. it's more, I think it's being open to the divine and being open to spirit and being open to messages, which is, which goes back to what we were saying earlier about how did I get here and what rituals helped me get here and what pra- being open is how I develop a relationship with my dead loved ones. I'm weary of saying that because I don't want to shame people that feel closed off to that, right? Like that's their journey too. And that is valid as well. So I don't want to create a binary of open or closed. I guess I'll just say, what are you receiving? What, what receptors are on? What antennae are out? And I think that the antennae that receive the muse and receive the inspiration for art are possibly the same channel that receives messages from the, from our ancestors and our dead loved ones. It's all in the same universe and it's developing muscles that receive whatever antennae we each have out and our antennae are unique and special to whatever, you know, to each of our televisions. (laughs) It's beautiful. Oh God. And I think when people think, you know, like, how can I become more creative? Or they ask, you know, people are trying to hone their skills in becoming more artistic, uh, who may, maybe have been afraid to be. I mean, I'm talking about myself, let's be yeah. honest, because there's, I, I definitely don't push it as far <laughs> as I could. So let me admit that right now and make myself accountable to this journey that I'm on. But I think that it's, I think you're right. Like the only way to do it is to become clearer have a, a mind that's more attuned. So it's, I, I think, yeah. you know, it's not a shaming thing. It's like, here's an, here's an access point because Ooh. it's, a, it's a better way of being. I it's agree. a better way of being. It's a better way of feeling in a, what feels healthy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And you want somebody else to feel that too. And I want to feel it more, which is why yeah. these conversations really help me. Totally. Thank you. And it's like, yeah, I just like want us all to be able to feel our full expansiveness and then we'll stop, you know, hurting each other. Should I read this poem? It's a journey. Yes, you should. (laughs) Okay. Time heals. Question mark. September to August. September was the last time I saw you conscious. October is when your heart failed. November, her birthday, early admissions. I get the two confused. 
these days, when the elasticity of reverie falls limp on the crest of my perseverance. It doesn't hurt anymore. It hasn't for a while. I wonder if it ever will again. Wonder who is hurt most. Probably her father and her brothers. Probably her youngest brother. He was so young then. How could he have understood? There's no way it doesn't hurt anymore. For him. December. Hours after our families shared dinner on the beach, January, he walked me back to the lobby. I would never, not in a million years, have guessed that he too would one day have a dead brother. February. I am writing November, December, and January, riding the L to the A to Penn Station. I arrive above ground to a text message from Phil. Lindsay Buntman's mother just died. It feels like everyone is dying since high school. At first, it felt manageable, like I was better prepared for adulthood. Now it just feels like I'm waiting for the next funeral. March. It still haunts me that I wouldn't find out till May. April. Your first birthday, after your death, first night Pesach, turned off phone, turned off computer, Bag of matzah, Haggadah in backpack, walked to river, said the prayers, ate the matzah in my shorts. They don't fit. Well, not anymore. They're long gone. Just like you, it still hurts. It always will. May. Not weeks after I graduated from journalism school, Aaron emailed me and asked if I'd recently heard from Chris. Since I wasn't looking for a straight career in reporting, at the time, it seemed the reason I went to journalism school was to gain the skill set whereby I instinctively Googled his name and immediately found his obituary. Died in March, private service. After several hours of repeatedly rereading his Facebook wall posts, I discovered it was suicide. A real reporter would have realized sooner without question. June, my empty words my empty mouth, my empty, empty. July. This is Q101, where the hit song of the summer is about suicide. We look at each other and laugh, and I take you to get a Slurpee at Dairy Queen. August. Which was just like the time she sampled the E she bought to sell back home in the States, and her eyes expanded and she held me koala on the side of the road near the gas station, which is just like the time she sampled the E she bought to sell back home in the States. And her eyes expanded, and she held me koala on the side of the road near the gas station, which is just like the time she sampled the E she bought to sell back home in the States. And her eyes expanded, and she held me koala on the side of the road near the gas station, which is just like the time she sampled the E she bought to sell back home in the States. And her eyes expanded and she held me koala on the side of the road near the gas station, which is just like the time she sampled the E she bought to sell back home in the States. And her eyes expanded and she held me koala on the side of the road near the gas station, which is just like the time she sampled the E she bought to sell back home in the States. And her eyes expanded, and she held me koala on the side of the road near the gas station. I want to give everybody who's experienced death that experience I just had. And now I can because it's on this podcast. It's fucking beautiful. Thank you. I'm speechless. 
I feel like this is a natural place to pause. There's so much more to say, but it would only be to explain what's already been said. How are you feeling? Good. How are you feeling? Expanded. Mm. Some catharsis. Yeah, same. Connected. Yeah. Reminded why I'm alive. Mm. It's going to help people. Thanks. You're going to help people. Thanks, love. I think let's... um. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer something that's so different from what I ever offer anybody, which is like a long series of goodbyes with a lot of love. I love yous. Yeah. I'm just going to offer that at the count of three. I'm going to press end on this and I'm going to take this beautiful experience into my day and I'm going to come back with it edited for you and we'll see what comes out. Fuck. That's wild. It's a lot of trust. And a lot of like, that's wild. I love you. Thank you for like, thank you. That's really, fuck. (laughs) We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And it's just like, that's so brave. Like I want to, I'm getting emotional because it like, it's so brave. I love you. Thank you for modeling that bravery. And we're still avoiding it by talking about it. See, three. Two. What? We're not avoiding it. I love you. I love you too. (laughs) Man, oh man, oh man, do I love talking to my friends about grief. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Thank you for listening to Flowers for Linda, episode four. I'm Kate Smeissner. That little theme music at the beginning. These are some flowers from Linda. That's my best friend, Maya Asusena. This music right here is by my brother, Blackfin. The episode was mixed by Tatenda. Deja from another Deja Man production. I forgot his last name for a minute because we always just call him Deja Man in this house. I edited the conversation down. Lots of jokes went missing. Sorry to tell you that. And now if you want to stick around, I'm going to read you On Watering People, which I published on Medium in my blog. I do that occasionally if you're interested, katesmeissner.medium.com. Thanks for your ears. Thanks for your heart, Caroline. See you all soon. Soon, soon. Okay, here's the blog entry that I shared, that I talked about earlier. It's about a seven-minute read. And it's called On Watering People. I'm going to stumble my way through it because it turns out when I try to read out loud, that's what I do. So you're just going to get cozy with me. It's like we're sitting on the couch together and I'm reading it to you. On Watering People was a phrase that stuck with me after a friend offered it. She then asked me, who waters you? This is a response in vignettes. <clears throat> At night, when the automatic grow lights click on and turn the apartment windows into terrarium-like other worlds, I am safe within my quiet cocoon. The jazz is across the world where I will join him in no time, but for now, I relish this chili alone. I sip the immune-boosting soup I cooked up on the stove. A book slowly blows my mind. I fill the apartment with songs that make my heart tingle. I add only the photos to my album of inspiration that take my breath away. If it doesn't cause, uh, if it doesn't cause a gasp, it isn't right for me. Simple test. Me and the plants this week, we have enjoyed our evenings just being alive together. When the jazz was patiently teaching me how to water the verifiable jungle in our crib the other week, a bit nervous to see if I'd live up to the task during his travels, he laughed You don't need to perfect the water like you're giving them a bath. And indeed, I snapped into the realization that I was holding my fingers under the tap exactly as if preparing for the skin of a newborn. Then I thought, this is all wrong. The plants are not babies. An approximation of a sensation that ran through my throat, a memory. A cold drink of water on a hot day, that's more like it, I thought. Not freezing, not warm. Give these plants a cool rain. Inviting our community to celebrate a loved one's recent freedom 
The details don't matter, but the gesture I invite you to steal as your own, I asked for any combination of the following to be shared. An experience of freedom. One place you go to experience liberation or a sense of liberation in New York City with instructions on how you enjoy the landscape. Alternatively, share one thing you do regardless of location. Two, a depiction of freedom. Share a link to a song or reading that makes you feel free. Three, any other words of care you'd wish to offer. What arrived in response were literally poems, songs, poetic bits of advice and admiration, and figuratively, candy, honey, salve, medicine, a home-cooked meal, again, that tall glass of cool water. And I am watered too, quite literally, often in the form of tears. For me, it's really the only form of motivation that I should bother to cultivate to feel good, by which I mean to feel more like myself, and through that embodied experience to help others feel good too, by which I mean more themselves. On Twitter, when someone known dies, someone who is shared by the collective, seen the world, so many missives are launched into the internet's sprawling neural network that echo one another, each tumbling over the other in a scramble to acknowledge, a self-conscious gesture of helplessness, and also sort of absurdly but forgivably, an outcome of groupthink's flattening effects. What is the most generous interpretation of anyone's given action? A good practice, but only if you stop to think about it. Too fast to act, you're a sucker. And I've only come to realize this through tons of personal experience. <laughs> uh, with some distance from social media, I experienced this public mourning with a sense of cognitive dissonance, shooting off a memorial tweet into a sea of mini diatribes on late night trains, shitty pizza, political dramas, Me Too takedowns, grannies dancing poorly on TikTok, thinly veiled gripes about colleagues and hashtag toxic work culture. Is Twitter not among the least sacred of spaces? Might some even call it a cesspool? But in another way, what a fascinating microcosm. Anyone who has ever suffered a close loss can attest to the funhouse mere quality of your own world collapsing inward while the salmon stream around you keeps racing forward. It is shocking, confusing, and hurtful how the larger world just continues on as is. Grief has a sound. A sound that embarrasses the repressed and offends the oppressive. Grief is the sound of being alive. This is a quote from Martine Prechtel that I sent to a friend after she called me today, her voice pouring rain when I answered the phone. The word itself is starting to get soggy, but look beyond it. Tend to your liberation as if giving a baby a bath, as if after a long sleep the relief of a cool glass of water. Sometimes when my anxiety spins out of control, I just repeat, you are safe inside my head, while breathing with my eyes closed. In a film I watched, the main character said in a guided meditation, plunge deeper into yourself. What I think he, me what I think he meant by yourself is the ultimate self, the one who is in the big cosmic swirl, it was both a little creepy and completely magnetic. It's not that I believe I am fundamentally safe, but I can find some relief in knowing that I am safe in the fact of being so fragile, so very unsafe, that one day, near or far, it will be lights out for me too. I guess this is what is meant by freedom found in facing your own mortality. One day, I'll just plunge back into that deeper self. It's peaceful there. But be careful with that sentiment, too. Two years ago, Yarrow planted a single seed in the backyard, and the passion fruit vines climbed and grew until they covered the entire view out of the living room window, and then up over the garden where the string lights twinkle over Kenny, who is dancing. Close your eyes when you dance, Kenny tells me, and what he's saying is that when electrons are being watched, they behave differently. I shuffle the two-step, eyes still open, I can't help it, while Kenny oprocks and hustles. He's a breakdancer. The moon bouncing off his heel and back into the sky. 
Before the pandemic, I used to see people dancing all the time in public. All the time! I realize how much I miss this as a memory surfaces. I'm watching a teenage girl and boy rap aloud on the train. The girl in particular is going hard, like really hard, hitting every word like a hammer coming down center head. She is deep lunging into the music, surfing the train shakes and turns, lifting her arms up like an astronaut, falling off the face of the moon and woo, floating through space. Punctuating the beat with dying stars like you will see me motherfucker and motherfucker is like God in this scene, if you know what I mean. This is how I used to listen to music when I was a kid, too. I needed to merge with it like an oxygen supply. It gave me things I didn't already have, like confidence, like swagger, like the sound of pain. But how I listen to music now, most often anyway is not about owning a song for the possession of the experience or to enmesh with it inappropriately, but to visit with it, to listen to what it has to say, to hang. A text from Linz. Reasons to love New York. Acoustic guitar with subtle Spanish vocals on the train and another dude laughing along to whatever the funny lyrics must be. The New York City Parks Department started putting these signs on occasional trees that read, Hug Me. When I was in a stuck depression a number of years ago, my friend brought me upstate, tended to my spirit, offered me care in the form of company, food, and some of the healing practices he was giving a shot. It turned my life around. I got back on track, not miraculously, but enough to propagate the desire to want to try again inside me. One of his pieces of advice that never left me, Put your anxiety into the trunk of a thick tree and ask the tree to take it, to shoot it down its roots, to convert it into energy and life. The earth can take it in that way. She can. I knew immediately that he was right. Tell me something about someone you love. A recent prompt in a storytelling workshop paraphrased, My answer, my best friend teaches me through example to expand myself but with less ego. Naming that helps me understand the direction in which I want to grow myself. That same weekend, a brilliant writer told me he cannot write without the television on in the background. Even during our free write in the workshop, he was listening to a show. Ha! Well, I thought to myself, you hear that? Stop judging yourself for how you create and just lean further in. It's not always the occasional vice that's the problem, another friend said. It's the guilt, the judgment, the making yourself wrong for it. If you're going to do it, you best enjoy it to the fullest extent while among the world of the living. So I'll end this episode, if you've listened this far, with the question, what waters you?